We're going to read from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, at verses 33 to 41. We take up the story when our Lord Jesus Christ has been hanging on the cross already for three hours. At verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks very much, Alan. Let's keep that passage open and let's pray to our God for help to understand it. Father in heaven, as we come to your word now, we thank you for the record of these events. And Lord God, we don't just pray for understanding in our minds. We pray, Lord, that you would capture our hearts with the reality of what we read before us. Lord, please guard us from being familiar with these truths and knowing the detail without having our lives radically altered by all that the Lord Jesus came to do on our behalf. So, Lord, please be at work in our minds, please be at work in our hearts, and please be at work in our lives. For your name's sake we pray. Amen. The question before us today is actually a simple one. It's a simple question, but it's also a significant question. And the question is this. Why did Jesus have to die why did he have to die because when we come to mark chapter 15 and this historical account of of the record of the death of jesus then i think for many of us we're probably on familiar ground many of us will will know the flow of this story we'll know the details of this story we'll know how this story hangs together But you see, familiar ground doesn't always mean fruitful ground. 
We can know the detail. We can know about the darkness and we can, we can repeat the cry of Jesus and we can know about the curtain. But have we actually had our, our lives turned upside down? Have we had our hearts transformed by the reality of what is here before us today? Do we fully recognize the implications of the death of our Lord Jesus for life as it is today? And so however familiar we are with this story, if this is the first time you've heard it this morning or the hundredth time, please don't miss the significance and the implications of what was happening here as Jesus died on the cross. Back in 2009, I went out to Paris to run the marathon with a few friends. And it's a good marathon because you see all the, the different sites and the landmarks of Paris. And, and we ran the marathon. There's, there's three or four of us. We sat down for a little pasta meal after. And as you do, you talk about the route and when you were hurting, when it was going well, and all these different landmarks that you passed. And it came to that point when we talked about the moment when we ran past the Eiffel Tower. That great landmark, it's about the 19 mile stage of the marathon. And as we were talking, one of the other guys, Dave Willis, Willow, who was running with us, just looked fairly blankly at us and said, I didn't see it. He said, I I was waiting for it on the map. He said, but I didn't see the Eiffel Tower. Did we run another route? I said, Willow, what do you mean? We We ran 30 yards in front of the Eiffel Tower. And there's another girl who was with us who was just watching, and she then produced this photo. Willow stopped for a photo in front of the Eiffel Tower. But by this stage, he's trudging 19 miles. You stop looking around, you stop taking in the sights, and he's looking down at his feet, and he actually stopped. He paused to have a photo taken before marching on, and he didn't even see it. Now, you might find that remarkable. You might even think, Cole Willow, that's pretty silly. You go all the way to Paris and you run past the great Eiffel Tower and you missed it altogether. But you see, if you think that's silly, how much more foolish that we would walk past the cross of Christ this morning and miss the point missed the significance of what was happening there. You see, just as the Eiffel Tower looms over the Paris skyline, so the cross towers above this world, and it screams out to the people of this world that God loves you. He loves you. God loves you. And he loves you this much that he was willing to send his only son to die for you. Yet how sad that so many will walk past the cross this Easter oblivious to its implications. Just as Willow walked past the Eiffel Tower and missed it altogether. And so as we come to this story this morning, as we look at the detail of what happened at the cross... Let's just put this in its context. Let's be clear that as we walk with Jesus to the moment of his death, the death of Jesus was not a mistake. We've seen this all the way through our series, haven't we? It wasn't the the consequence of a series of unfortunate incidents all outside the scope and control of Jesus all along the way. His journey to the cross, the Lord Jesus was in charge. He knew exactly what was happening. This was the hour for which he came into this world. This is our series. 
The reason God stepped out of heaven into this world in the person of his son was for this very hour. Just jump back, if you would, one week to Mark chapter 10, verse 32 and 34. It's on the screen here. And this is the third of three clear predictions that Jesus makes concerning his death. The events that are before us today. Look at what he says. Again, he took the twelve aside again. And he told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. And will hand him over to the Gentiles. Who will mock him and spit on him. Flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Will, 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 will. And it did. Every single detail fulfilled exactly as Jesus said it would. Jesus knew. When he made that journey to Jerusalem a week before, as he arrived into the city, Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. But he went anyway. And he went there for you. And that's the irony we saw last week, isn't it? The mockery. Do you remember in verse 31, Jesus has been crucified. He's hanging on the cross and the passers-by are passing by. And they're mocking him and they say he saved others, but he can't save himself. Oh, the irony. Because at any moment along the way, Jesus could have turned away. He knew exactly what was going to happen. Even on the cross, even in this moment before he dies, he could have called down the 12 legion of angels to deliver him from this moment. But he didn't. He chose to stay on the cross in order to save us instead. This is the hour for which he came. And so to the cross we go. And there's three things we're going to look at this morning that happened at the cross. And if we miss any of them, then we've missed the point altogether. And here's the first one. At the cross, God was angry. Verse 33 At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. By this point, Jesus has already been on the cross for three hours. Have a look back at verse 25. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. Nine o'clock a.m., Jesus was nailed to that wooden beam and he was hoisted up and it was slotted into its place. And he hung there for three hours until 12 o'clock midday. And 12 o'clock noon, look what happens. The lights go out. Darkness descends when the sun should have been beating down and Jerusalem at its hottest and its brightest. It goes black and it stays black for three hours until 3 p.m. in the afternoon. So I've been away on your holidays, you know, that that. That slot between 12 and 3 when it's too hot to do anything and you're lying by the pool and you've got your sunglasses on because it's so bright and it's so warm and you're lying there and suddenly the lights go out. 12 o'clock it's gone dark and it stays black for three hours. You see, you don't have to be a genius to understand something hugely significant is happening here as Jesus dies. And the rest of the Bible, of course, helps us understand exactly what that is. 
Because throughout the Bible, darkness is almost exclusively associated with sin and with God's anger, his judgment that is poured out against it. There's many places we could go to, but have a look at this little verse from Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 15. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. When the sky went black, it was a sign that God's anger was being poured out. Now, I know some people struggle with this concept of a of a loving God who gets angry. But you see, it's precisely because God is so good and so loving and so holy that he does get angry. He cannot just sweep sin under the carpet and forget about it. He cannot pretend the evil and the wicked in this world has not happened. God must and will hold this world accountable. You see, when we think of anger, we... We often reduce it down into our own human framework, don't we? Our own, our own uncontrolled fly off the handle moments when someone just does something really lame to us, but something boils over and it all spills out and it's uncontrolled. But of course, that's not the anger that we see here at the cross. God's anger is a measured and controlled and righteous response to all that is wrong in this world. You see, when we understand just how holy and perfect and glorious and good God is, and when we understand how sinful and dark and broken is the human heart, it's not surprising at all that God gets angry. What is surprising here in the passage before us is who God is angry at. Because when the sky went black and when it stayed black for three hours... It wasn't sinful me or another sinful human being on the cross. It was God's sinless, perfect son. God was angry at Jesus, which brings us to our second point. At the cross, Jesus was abandoned. At the cross, God was angry. And at the cross, Jesus was abandoned. Look at the cry there. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you left me to die on the cross? It's the only time in the whole of the New Testament that Jesus does not relate to his God as father. You see, in all eternity, the Son, Jesus, has enjoyed and and cherished this relationship of wonderful intimacy and joy within the Trinity, within the Godhead. Love, care, concern, provision, the most glorious union imaginable between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But at the cross, Jesus felt and experienced none of that. He felt none of the love And the care and the concern and the joy of that relationship. All he experienced was the full weight of sin and of God's anger directed towards it. But the big question remains, why Jesus? 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, says Jesus? Well, the answer is actually pretty simple. It's not because of his sin. It's because of ours. Jesus hung there in our place with our sin upon his shoulders. You see, 700 years before these events, the prophet Isaiah looked forward to this moment. Look what he says. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That picture of of laying upon Jesus the sin, the iniquity of us all, it takes us back to Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement. This great annual ceremony when the sins of the nation were dealt with. And right at the heart of this ceremony when, when God dealt with the sins of his people was the, was the death of two, well, was the, were two goats. And one of the goats was killed and the other goat was the scapegoat. And there he is and the, the high priest would have laid his hands on the head of this goat and it was symbolic of the transfer of the sin of the people onto this goat and this goat was then taken away into the wilderness. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. And that's what's happening at the cross. Not symbolically, but actually. The sin of the redeemed was being laid to the account of Christ. And he took it all. And he owned it all. And he was treated on the cross as sin deserved. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, God who made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin, the sinless one, Jesus, became sin for us in order that we might stand righteous before God. At the cross, God was angry. At the cross, Jesus was abandoned, and at the cross, you can be accepted. Verse 37, have a look down. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And so the camera pans across the Jerusalem skyline. From the Mount of Crucifixion where Jesus dies to Temple Mount where, where the great temple of God stood. And at that exact moment when the Lord Jesus breathes his last, we get this glimpse into what was happening at the temple. And at that very moment, the, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What's the significance? Well, the temple, of course, was God's dwelling place amongst his people. It is where God dwelt with his people. And this, this curtain, this 60 foot high, 30 foot wide, as, as thick as the, the span of a man's hand, it hung there between the most holy place and the holy place. And it hung there as a, a constant reminder to God's people that we cannot just walk into the presence of a holy God and be okay. It's like a big no entry sign. A perfect, holy and good God and the curtain stood there as a reminder saying, you cannot come in. You are too broken. You are too sinful. We do not have free access into the presence 
of God until Jesus breathes his last on the cross. Because at that very moment, the no entry sign is taken down. This great curtain is torn in two from top to bottom, showing that we as sinful people have have freedom to walk back into the presence and the loving arms of the living God. What a moment when that curtain was ripped in two. And just to put it into its biblical context very briefly because this is such a significant moment in the whole flow of the biblical narrative back in genesis chapter 3 verse 24 let me read after he drove the man out he placed on the east side of the garden of eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. After Adam and Eve disobeyed the loving rule of God, they were, they were kicked out of Eden. They were removed from his presence and the way to the tree of life was guarded by these warrior angels, by the cherubim. We do not have, from Genesis 3, we did not have free access back to God and back to life. And then as the story continues, look at this in Exodus chapter 26, as God gives instructions to his people to build the tabernacle, this portable tent, the forerunner for the temple. Look at the detail. Make a curtain of blue, purple and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim woven into it by a skilled worker. You see the curtain? Do you see what's on the curtain? It's the cherubim of Genesis 3. It's that constant reminder from the very beginning when man turned their back on God that we cannot come in to the presence of God. The same cherubim would have stood on the curtain in the temple. And then, of course, the verses before us today. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last and the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That barrier that had been ever since Genesis 3 was ripped in two because of the death of Jesus as God beckons people to come back into his presence. Don't know whether anyone's read this book. You might have done if you've got children. The Garden, the Curtain and the Cross. It just retells that little story that we've been thinking of there. And it is a quite magnificent read. But there's just one little phrase that keeps coming up in this book and it's, it's so well done. And it says this, because of your sin, you can't come in. Because of your sin, you can't come in. Because of your sin, you can't come in. And it's repeated all the way through until the death of Jesus. When all of a sudden the little phrase changes. But Jesus has died. So now you can come in. Because of the death of Jesus we can come into God's presence in a perfectly restored relationship with him. And don't miss the detail. Do you see that at verse 38? The curse of the temple was torn into where? From top to bottom. Not bottom to top, not earth to heaven, but heaven to earth. Point is, this is God's doing. This is all grace There is not one thing man can do, no moral mark that he can meet, no achievement that he can accomplish that can gain access into the presence of God. It's all grace. The curtain was torn from top to bottom. God did it all through the remarkable death of his son Jesus on the cross.
And the question then that remains for us this morning, and it's the question that goes out to the world. Where do we stand in relation to these events? Are we for Jesus or are we against him? Because you see in verse 39, we meet a Roman centurion who just hours before was against Jesus. This guy was one of the murder party. It was his job to to drag Jesus to the cross and kill him. And he did it. He did his job. He did it very well. But just hours on, this man who was against Jesus, he witnesses all that's happened. He sees the darkness, the rocks splitting, the earthquake, and he hears the cry of Jesus, all the different things that we read in, in the in the accounts, the parallel accounts in the Gospels. He witnesses it all. And he believes, verse 39. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. And Mark writes his gospel account in order that we, the reader, might join the centurion with that great declaration of faith that Jesus really is the son of God. And so as we finish this morning, let me remind you, of where we began. Remember Willow? There he is, grinning in front of the Eiffel Tower. And you look at that photo and everything in me is shouting, Willow, just turn around. It's like the panto, isn't it? It's behind you, Willow. It's behind you. You've missed it. Just turn around. You come to Paris. You run past the Eiffel Tower. It's behind you. Turn around, my friend. And so it is with the cross. As we walk through this life and we've just done our walk of witness this morning and you see people walking dogs and doing their DIY, all these different things are happening and they are oblivious to the cross of Christ. And it is our job and it is our joy as believers, if indeed we are this morning, to say, turn around world, turn around Turn to the cross, acknowledge your sin, admit that you have offended and turned away from your loving Father. But at the cross, you're not just exposed to your sin. Because it's at the cross when you meet a wonderful Savior called Jesus. Who died on a cross in order that you might go in. That's why Good Friday is so good. So why don't we take a moment just to reflect as you look at these events, as you remember the darkness, as you remember the cry of the Lord Jesus, as you think about the curtain being torn in two from top to bottom. Let these events, let these details not just stay in your head, but let it turn your world upside down. Because what happened at the cross changes everything. And it changes it for eternity. So just take a moment to reflect and then we'll sing together.